For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. This podcast is just a portion of the work that End It For Good does. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we also host in-person events. I do speaking engagements. We're on social media at End It For Good MS. And if you're not on our email list, head over to enditforgood.com and scroll down to the bottom of the page and sign up. We'd love to have you on that. It's where we send out information about the other things that we're doing. Our guest today on the podcast is um, Chief Betty Taylor, who is a retired police officer and former police chief, and she's going to share the experiences that changed her mind about the drug war. But first, I want to remind you of what our big dream is here at the End It For Good podcast and at End It For Good as an organization. Our big dream is to live in a world where the war on drugs is over, where drugs, drug use, and addiction are all handled as public health issues and not criminal justice issues. That's why we want all drugs to be legal again, because we see that as the best way to reduce crime, overdose deaths, and incarceration by handling drugs as a public health issue um, that we believe they are. So we believe that world isn't just attainable, but it is attainable in our lifetime. Um, So it's attainable, but it's not inevitable. The drug war will not end itself. There are lots of people um, making a lot of money off of it. And without a movement to end it, we will keep doing what we are doing today, Um, even though it has been a failure at stemming both the supply and demand for drugs. So how do we end it? Well, that's where you come in as a listener and as a citizen. So people enter this conversation only when they're invited to by somebody that they trust, and that's you. So talk about this, not in an angry, blaming way that's actually worse than staying quiet, I think, but in a respectful, invitational way. Invite people into this conversation. Invite them to listen to a podcast episode. Invite them to read Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, or Timothy King's book, Addiction Nation. Invite them to come on a journey with you, exploring alternatives to the drug war. That's how people change their minds. Not when uh, someone shakes a fist in their face, um, but when we make ourselves vulnerable by saying, hey, I'm learning, will you join me? Um, Changing minds isn't about who can win a fight. It's about who can build the best bridge. And bridge building is what we want to do and be part of. Um, So our guest today is um, Chief Taylor. She began her law enforcement career in 1997 with an aim to assist victims of sexual assault. She served as a deputy sheriff and helped develop the first sex crimes unit Um, in her area. She was also the first female officer to join the SWAT team in Lincoln County, Missouri, and she later worked as a police officer and gang investigator in Missouri before becoming the chief of the Winfield Police Department. Upon retiring from policing, Chief Taylor began teaching courses on sexual assault investigations as an adjunct professor in criminal justice. She holds an MFA in writing and an MS in criminal justice administration. She was honored as the Lincoln County Law Enforcement Officer of the Year in 2001. Chief Taylor currently resides in Seattle, but she remains closely connected to uh, Missouri. Chief Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So how did you get interested in police work? Um, my mom, uh, I come from a really tiny town on the Arkansas border um, uh, of Missouri, and my mom had always wanted to go into law enforcement, but it was uh, she was just wrong, uh, raised in the wrong generation. And um, she had always brought me up reading police magazines, and we would play games like uh, she'd pass the car and tell me, okay, what was the license plate on that car that we just passed? 
Oh, and, wow. Um, she kind of started my police training from birth, but, um, and then uh, I had a sister that had disappeared in 1983, mm. and her and her two children, and um, we couldn't find her. And as I grow, got older, I had my life had taken me to Seattle um, as a young adult. And then I went back to Missouri and um, just remembered all the things that my mom had told me and the respect that she had had for law enforcement. And um, then she, um, I, I said, well, you know, maybe I can become a police officer and help find my sister. And 24 years later, I did. So wow. <laughs> that's how I got into law enforcement. Wow. You now are a speaker with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Um, so what what began the process for you of changing your mind about how we approach drugs? Drug policy is just one of the things that the Law Enforcement Action Partnership works on. Um, but I met you a couple of months ago, and you were just telling me in passing, you know, as we were at the same conference about kind of your journey um, to rethink our criminal approach to drugs. It was really powerful. Um, so share that. What what began the journey for you in kind of shifting the way you think about drugs? Well, I was always raised that, um, you know, that drugs were bad and that uh, they should people should go to jail if they use drugs or, because it led to other crimes. And then mm. as a sex crimes investigator, I could see that, you know, I could see that, okay, there was drug use and it led to maybe a, because I, I specialize in crimes against persons. Mm. So um, the use of drugs was always, there could be, it could be linked back to many crimes, crimes against uh, persons, crimes against property. So I didn't always have this attitude towards that. And then when I got into police work, I saw the irreparable harm that was being done. Um, one of the big turning points for me, there was, I can cite several, but one was the D.A.R.E. program. Um, I, uh, I love working with children. I, and, um, you know, that's what I specialized in with children, sex crimes and, and things like that. And, I saw this dare officer um, who go in, okay, we tell the kids that drugs are bad and that people who do drugs are bad, but these are their parents. These are these, this, the kids' parents or the grandparents or the people that they love. And you're telling them, because, you know, law enforcement, we have a respectful, we want our kids to respect law enforcement, but you're telling them that the parent, the people that they love and that have been there, they're bad and that you should turn them in. Well, I had one instance where a kid did go to the officer and say, listen, are my parents bad? They're smoking marijuana. And um, so I guess they're bad. And I should tell you because you're telling me to tell you. So we went to, um, we, the, the, their officer got the information and we did a search warrant on this kid's house and found nothing that was, that would equate to anything big, but what irreparable damage should we do? First of all, their community relations with this child. Now this child is saying, oh, you know, I've destroyed the family. I've, now I've got, to, I've got to go into either foster care or go to a, a, another relative, which you don't know if that, that's the best place for them to go, but you have to place them. And, and now you've got the parents saying, you know, our kid basically turned it in. Mm. So what did we really accomplish by just, having a misdemeanor charge on this family. This is a ripple effect that will affect this family for years or not even the rest of their life because how do you come back from that? So we're, that was one of the big turning points was, you know, just seeing 
how that one family was impacted by, well, we're supposed to be the good guys. And we want people to think that law enforcement is supposed to be the good guys and they're supposed to be there to protect us. And, but what damage did we really do just by getting a misdemeanor charge on this family? So that you know, was that, a DARE program for people that may not be familiar with it. A lot of them probably grew up with it in their schools, but it's a, you're going to schools and educating kids about the dangers of drugs. Is that yes. the gist of the DARE program? Yeah. And so then and, you had a child who was part of one of your school education outreaches who then said, well, you know, you're, you're saying these things are, are bad, but you know, actually that's going, my parents use marijuana and so I'm telling you because I'm supposed to tell you. And that ended up with his parents getting arrested and all of this, like you said, I loved it. You said the ripple effect of harm of what happens. Yes. And I mean, that's just one of the, there, another example was, you know, I was in the SWAT team and we went in and, um, and did a raid on a house and there was some children in the house. So I was assigned to go back with the children and this, I had this little, you know, elementary age sister protecting her brother from us. Hey, we're supposed to be the good guys. We're coming in, but we're throwing your parents to the ground. We're telling you to get back in a room and don't, don't come out. We've got guns. We're all dressed in black. And years later I ran into that, um, the little, the, the one of the children from that night, she said, I was the only good thing from that night. But the, also to see that ripple effect, because then there was post-traumatic stress, the, they had trouble sleeping, the brother went down a wrong path. And, you know, it, maybe it wasn't just from that one night, but what damage did we do for three, three pipes of marijuana? Hmm. That's all we got from that. And, a, you know, what are you getting, a press release and three pipes from marijuana? So things like that, because... Me coming up, you know, I was raised in the church, so I always felt like, okay, am I doing, I, I'm getting in this for an honorable reason, but am I doing honorable things? Hmm. That's, and that, that weighed a lot on me. Yeah. Um, you know, especially now, you know, years later, and I, when I teach officers or, or people who, you know, have been in it a while or people that are just getting into it, they, um, into law enforcement, they, you know, there's things that you'll see that you'll never unsee. And you'll think about that and you have to take that home with you in your own personal life. Wow. Yeah, that's really, that's really impactful. Um, And I think that's um, a lot of maybe how people feel, you know, in our work, if they feel like we're anti-law enforcement and we always say we're not anti-law enforcement. Uh, We think we're actually asking officers to do, to be, to engage in harmful behavior and that their own consciences then have to bear the weight of what we're asking them to do. Um, I think that's a really helpful way that you put that of, you know, my, my intent, my heart in this is to do, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for honorable reasons. I want to help people, but is the outcome of this honorable that's work? A, I think people that really don't understand that most people that go into law enforcement are very honorable people. They, they want to do the right thing. And that's, it's, it is the greatest profession you can ever be in. Um, however, there are unjust laws and that's when, you know, it takes the the officers to stand up and say, okay, this is not right. And I fortunately came from very marginalized people. You know, I come from a Southern low income woman who gave me a voice to say, to say, okay, but a lot of officers don't have that voice that they can, they can stand up and say, oh, well, this, I don't feel good about this. 
Mm. Or mm-hmm. they feel that their job's in jeopardy and they just don't feel right about it. But we've got to have that turning point where officers are, they're the people out in the streets that are, are having to live with these decisions that they make every day. They have to go home and they have to bring it to their families and to their communities. And they, that's one thing you, that you have to think about. And I tell young officers when I, I teach them is that, okay, mental preparedness, you have to take self-care and make sure, because my, my doctorate works in psychology. So that's one thing I, I really think has been a, a turning point since I, was, I started is that we're learning more about self-care for officers themselves. And you know, that mm-hmm. things that they see, they can't unsee. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point you made too, about, you know, um, even just thinking of the ripple effect with those children, you know, that you ended up seeing one of those children later in life again. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that we don't often think a lot about. We think, you know, for those of us who aren't part of law enforcement or aren't part of having our home, you know, uh, the SWAT team at our home, we, we just see what the news shows us. So we see, you know, a, a 10 second clip of, you know, you know, busting the door down or whatever and going inside and arresting people. And, and what we think is, you know, all of those people were, were, you know, actively breaking the law and they, they got arrested for it. And that's the end of the story. And we don't see what, what happened, you know, were there, were there children in the home? What is that like for a child to be, you know, at their home and suddenly it's invaded and there's guns everywhere and there's, you know, like you said, you know, their their parents are getting thrown to the ground and they're in a back room and they don't, you know, and the amount, I think of that same sort of thing with foster care because we're previous foster parents of what is it like for a child to be, to have a stranger come to their home and take them away? What does that mm-hmm. do to their ability to feel that the world can be a safe place for them and isn't somewhere that you know, they have to be, even in their own home, terrified that, you know, someone's going to come in uh, all of a sudden, you know, with no warning. So those kinds of things have very real cost to them. And, and certainly in some instances, we, that is a cost that, that is part of, you know, we, we can't, we can't always mitigate that cost. Um, you know, there's some, if, if somebody is wanted, you know, for murder, sometimes that's, mm-hmm. that's just necessary. You know, we have to, that's the only way we're going to get that person. And there is going to be some, um, repercussion from that for other people that are, you know, involved. But where we can, uh, where, you know, like you said, you got, you know, three pipes and, um, you know, a news story, but is is the cost of that worth those three pipes? Um, and I think that's a, that's, that's what I always want people to kind of be wrestling with is it's not that what we're doing doesn't in some way have some positive effect sometimes, but the cost of getting that small bit of effect is really high. Um, and that's kind of my, my whole thought on kind of how we approach drugs is just the cost of what we're doing, criminalizing them, is so high in its societal cost and emotional cost and, um, you know, crime cost and all that sort of thing. So what is your what's your take on the pulse of law enforcement today related to openness and rethinking drug laws. You still do work in law enforcement um, in a different capacity today. What what do you see um, kind of nationwide or even just in the community that you're in? Is there is there more openness as, as time goes on or um, is this still just a really difficult issue for law enforcement to rethink? And in, in some areas it is, especially where I'm from and from, the, you know, from the Midwest. And um, but I live uh, right outside of Seattle and it's um, 
Seattle's very progressive, so um, they have the um, they're been thinking about or talking about the having the uh, safe injection spots mm-hmm. for people. Um, I, I, but I I do talk to officers in the Midwest and the South, and and a lot of them just see that we failed. <laughs> it's just this is a failing thing, and they want to change, but this, the change is so slow because this has been our way of living for generations now. We, you know, drugs are bad. We know that, that, that this leads to other crimes. But um, I think generally the, the pulse, and because we have so much community activism, you know, I was teaching in Ferguson during the riots. And my husband's from, well, my ex, uh, is from the uh, Ferguson, Ferguson Jennings area and had seen um, some of the abuses of, of uh, things that went on prior to the the whole uh, riot and the whole uh, unrest in Ferguson. Mm, so, mm-hmm. um, but I think that the community, if they get more aware of, of what we can do, because what we've done now is just not working. We're just, it's just, we're in a hamster wheel. It just keeps going around and around. And so a lot of officers that I talk to, they say, well, you know, I, I don't feel right about this. I really, and I say, well, then you have a voice, you need to use it. Or you need to find ways of uh, educating the community and letting them know and, and helping with community relations. Because, you know, I, can't, I was taught in an area where there, the community relations was broke down. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to make sure that, you know, when, we, when I do go out and I tell people, hey, you know, I've, I've been there. I wore the uniform. I, I've rode in the car. I know exactly what you're doing. And... Um, you know, you have a voice, use it and see what you can do and, and getting those, those people who are thinking that way, they need to be in positions of leadership because there's other people that think that way. They just don't know how to go about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard um, uh, recently somebody that is in law enforcement just made the comment that, you know, if I if I publicly support, like voice my support for ending the drug war, that'll be the end of my career. Right. Um, and it, I, I wonder how how many people, you know, privately, even in law enforcement, would say, yeah, I'm, I'm open to something different, but it's it's kind of another animal to, um, you know, for a, a system to kind of make a shift and to kind of allow that space publicly for, you know, individual opinion to begin to, to reshape how the system um, responds to that because it seems like it would be a, a very painful path for officers. Um, like in your experience, you know, you're you're part of this team that's teaching the Dare program, um, and then you see kind of what ends up happening because of that. It seems like that's a that's kind of a, a, a painful journey that that officers kind of people like me are asking them to take. Of you know, your intent is, is good, but it's actually, you know, causing a lot of harm. Is that your experience? Is that kind of what you think is part of what's so challenging for um, law enforcement to shift on this? It is because it's a paramilitary organization. So you have a chain of command, you have, um, and then your, your chief sets your culture. So if you're, you're a chief, it's like, let's go out and let's, you know, let's, let's do, you know, get tough on drugs Well, you're set, you're setting the culture of that. So, I think it starts with your, your leaders and then your officers, even the ones that have a different opinion and, and really want to be tough on drugs or don't want to be, then they, they should, the leaders should be giving a voice to them and letting them without harm to their jobs because it's, 
you know, law enforcement, going back to, you know, psych- psychological work, it's, it's a, it has a very high suicide rate, has a very mm-hmm. high domestic mm-hmm. violence rate. And it's because you bring that, the things that home that, you know, you, if you don't know how to deal with it correctly. And then thinking of getting back to, like, um, the children from the D.A.R.E. program or the children from that search warrant, it leaves those children in our communities vulnerable to re-victimization because if they can't, if they're getting victimized, who are they going to report to? These people that came in in, in dark clothes and threw everybody to the ground? Hmm. That's just as scary as the victim uh, of being victimized. And I, I found that a lot with my sexual assault work was that, you know, children who are were being, or even, you know, um, young ladies or young, young men who are being victimized were very reluctant to report sex crimes and would go along and be re-victimized over and over again because of fear of the police. Hmm. And yeah. it could, you know, like those uh, young kids that were on the search warrant, it could go back to that. It could go back to, okay, what was your interactions with police? Well, they're throwing mom and dad to the ground. <laughs> are they really the good guys? Are they really there to help hmm. and serve and protect me? Because they yeah. didn't protect me that night. They were threw my parents to the ground. I mean, there's just so many, and I hate to go back to the ripple effect, but it is. It's a ripple effect that the war on drugs has created, and it's created this re-victimization of our, of our communities. Wow. So what's the best way um, that you feel like people can support their local law enforcement, even if, you know, they're against the war on drugs, even if they don't support all of the laws that they're enforcing or the way that they're enforcing? How can people continue to, to show um, support for their local law enforcement without, you know, maybe feeling like they're, they're supporting things that they, they don't agree with, but how can they still show uh, appropriate support? Well, I think that ending silence, we need to have these open discussions and, and talk about alternatives. It's, it's, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we've been doing that over and over again. Let's get out and let's talk about what is, is going on and let's come up with viable solutions for our community and make our community safer. Let's see what we can do, how we can start the, uh, start having these open dialogue conversations because what we've been doing is just creating generations of more prisons, more inmates, more fan, uh, re-victimization. So we we got to start talking because action hasn't been working. Mm. If you could change one law related to drugs, what would it be that you feel like would have the most good for the most people? I think it would be to have cannabis legalized nationally. Because um, even out here in Seattle, where recreational cannabis is legalized, um, it still stops people from um, uh, from being in houses and um, and, and, and obtaining a point employment. Uh, because it's still federally prohibited and scheduled. Yes, because of the federal ruling on it. Because, you know, when you, like you sign it, even out here where it's, you know, it's legalized, you still, when you sign a a lease agreement, you say you cannot use or you cannot grow or anything in there because of the schedulization. And and then, you know, the expungements, if you just have a marijuana charge, that can knock you out from certain types of employment. So I think by it being legalized nationally and then, okay, and we go back. It was our cash crop in the state of Missouri until 1935. <laughs> wow. So, you know, and we just now got medical marijuana in Missouri. So, this, you know, it, it's out there. People are, that's the one law that I think would have the greatest impact for right now. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chief Taylor. We appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. 
Chief Taylor is a speaker with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is, I think, the premier organization of criminal justice professionals engaged in a whole host of criminal justice reform issues, including ending the drug war. You can find them on social media at Law Enforcement Action. And remember, drugs and addiction are a complex health issue, uh, not a criminal justice issue, and it's time for us to handle them that way. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.